It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the John Cleese episode of The Muppet Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm David Levy. Here with me today are Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, and Adam Grossworth. We are here this week to talk about season two, episode 23 of The Muppet Show. Uh, it was produced once again, uh, according to Muppet Wiki and Jim Henson's Red Book, August 11th through 13th, 1977. Once again, I do not understand how that makes it episode 23, but it did air in New York on December 5th, 1977, and in the UK in October, so those dates check out. In New York, it was number 12 in the airing order in between Don Knotts and Zero Mostel. Um, In the news this week, just some things jumped out at me on the front page of the New York Times. There was a mystery hijacking in Singapore. I, I mean, it's, it's bleak, but... um. Remember hijacking? I was going to say that's weird, but like they were like weirdly common in the 70s and 80s, I feel like. And I'm, I'm glad that they're not anymore. But like the story was that nobody knew who would hijack the plane or why. And uh, a headline down below that job bias cases challenge plans favoring blacks. Glad, glad that's changed and we're not dealing with that anymore. Sarcasm. And right in the center of the front page of the New York Times, this one's for you, David. After criticism, Harvard acts to improve teaching quality. This was under a photo from a different article. This was a really terrible layout, um, a picture of Arab leaders. So if you looked at this the wrong way, you might improve that Harvard acted to improve teaching quality by hiring Muammar Gaddafi and Yasser Arafat. A few pages in, there's a fantastic ad for the world's first computer-controlled cassette deck sold exclusively at Sam Goody. We'll have that in the show notes. The ad, not the cassette deck. And on television, Following the Muppet Show on CBS, the second annual Circus of the Stars, were we ever so innocent? This featured Peter Fonda in Motorcycles on the High Wire, Cindy Williams shot from a cannon, Penny Marshall mixing it up with an elephant, and Richard Roundtree in a dive of death, plus many, many more. And just of the guest stars who have or will guest star on the Muppet Show, George Burns, Linda Carter, and Paul Williams. We need to bring back Circus of the Stars. <laughs> right? Like, dancing is fine, but I want to see Rachel Brosnahan get eaten by a lion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just finished the season of Mrs. Maisel right before we started recording. Nothing against Rachel Brosnahan personally. But, like, I just, I think the stakes are too low, and we should bring back Circus of the Stars. Like, they, these are big stars who did this nonsense, and and I think we need to bring that back. Following Circus of the Stars, it was a show called Switch, and the ad says, Stage set for murder. Pete and Matt get into the act when a vaudevillian becomes a killer's target. I don't know why this hasn't come up before. It It is tonight on a new night. It's just moved to Mondays, but that means it should have been there elsewhere because we're jumping around in time. According to IMDb, it's about an ex-cop, Frank McBride, played by Eddie Albert, and an ex-con, Pete Ryan, played by Robert Wagner, who start their own detective agency. And this was its third and final season. It was created by Glenn A. Larson, who is uh, better known for many, many, many shows, including Battlestar Galactica, Knight Rider, Magnum P.I., so many other things. It, or at least this episode, also starred Sharon Gless and Kim Cattrall. So, you know, I'm interested. It's so interesting to me that American shows can have like 70 episodes and be totally forgotten, and British shows can have six and be considered an all-time classic. I mean, they can also be totally forgotten. (laughs) Right, but there are very few 
American television shows that have six episodes or 12 episodes that are considered all-time classics, at least from this period. True. This will come up later when we talk about John Cleese's history. Right. And we're back in the uh, we're back in football season, so the NBC movie is back. It's called The Storyteller. An angry mother insists her son's death was caused by a TV show. It starred Patty Duke Aston. It is hard to track down because its title is both generic and the title of a late 80s Jim Henson series. So that comes up when you search for it. I did find a 10-minute clip on YouTube, which I'll put in the show notes, because uh, I want to watch it. So um, <laughs> I went looking. Introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you John Cleese, comedian, writer, shitty old man with bad politics. John Cleese is best known as a member of Monty Python, and unlike some of our other more razzle dazzle stars, his life story isn't all that interesting. He didn't grow up on the stage, as no, uh, he was born in 1939, is the only son of a middle class family. Uh, He went to Cambridge and got involved with their Footlights Theatrical Club, and there he met his future writing partner and fellow Python, Graham Chapman. Uh, One of the shows that they did at the Footlight uh, was successful enough that they took it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and there it was successful enough that they renamed it as Cambridge Circus and brought it on tour to the West End, to New Zealand, and to Broadway, where it played at the Plymouth Theater for uh, just under a month. Kind of like six. That was sort of the... The path of the show six. Yes, except the six is um, wildly more popular and will stay for much more than a month. Yes. (laughs) Although the show only stayed for a month, John Cleese stayed in New York for quite a bit, appearing in other stage shows, including the Broadway production of the British musical Half a Sixpence, which is where he met Terry Gilliam, another future Python, and Connie Booth, who would become his first wife and his collaborator on Faulty Towers. More on that in a bit. He returned to Great Britain and began writing and performing for the BBC, appearing on the comedy radio program, I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again, which was an offshoot of the Footlights Club, and writing for the television program, The Frost Report, where he met the rest of the men who would form Monty Python. Monty Python's Flying Circus debuted in October 1969, and although it ran for four years, pleased a part of the show after the third. He remained affiliated with the Pythons and would continue to make movies, albums, and live appearances with the group. I'm assuming that if you're listening to this show, you're familiar with Monty Python. Maybe that's a bad assumption. They are essentially a sketch comedy group started with this television show. Their movies included some films that were collections of sketches and some that were long form, probably most famous with Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the life of Brian. In the 70s, he worked on various comedy shows and films. He produced a series of business training films, sort of like the Muppet Meeting films, if you remember those. And most surprisingly, he served for three years as the rector of the University of St. Andrews, which means he was the head of the governing body of that university. It's a position elected by the students, but it's not merely formal. He is remembered for instituting a policy that created a permanent student seat on the governing body and other sort of modernizing changes to the way things worked. So uh, it really was like a job he took seriously and did well. His most notable creation of the 1970s was the aforementioned Faulty Towers, a sitcom about the staff of a hotel in a small seaside town. Despite only running for two series, a total of 12 episodes, this frequently ranked at the top of lists of best British sitcoms. As I mentioned, he co-created and co-starred in this with his first wife, Connie Booth. They split after the first series was completed, but they remained friends. He would be married three more times, spending the 1980s with Barbara Trentham, 
1992 to 2008 with Alice Eichelberger, from whom he had a particularly nasty divorce, and 2012 onward with his current wife, Jennifer Wade, who is literally half his age and 10 years younger than his first daughter. Some highlights from his career after his Muppet Show appearance, writing and starring in A Fish Called Wanda and its follow-up, Fierce Creatures, appearing in the James Bond films, The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day, co-writing two self-help books with psychiatrist Robin Skinner, Families and How to Survive Them, and Life and How to Survive It. From 1999 onwards, he's been affiliated with Cornell University in various capacities, making occasional appearances on campus. In this century, he was in a number of films, most notably as Nearly Headless Nick in the Harry Potter series, and he's done a number of comedy tours, both solo and with fellow Python, Eric Idle. I mentioned his shitty politics up top, and it's actually a bit more complicated than that. In the last few years, he's made headlines for being pro-Brexit and railing against cancel culture, uh, but he also has a long record of supporting liberal causes. It seems like something shifted for him the last decade, and while he hasn't exactly become a right-wing nut, he seems to have a habit of saying shitty things about immigrants and otherwise just running off at the mouth where he would be better off just keeping quiet. Falling on his sword for J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Ugh. Oops. Anyway, uh, I imagine that we all grew up with some exposure, at least to Monty Python, maybe Faulty Towers too. What What are your memories and in, in pre-impressions of John Cleese? This probably isn't true, but as far as my memory goes, there's basically a straight line from The Muppet Show to Monty Python in in my like pop culture comedy formation. Monty Python's Flying Circus aired on on PBS in the like I guess early eighties, late seventies, early eighties, which is also wild because like you know PBS is supposed to be like educational and high culture, but in the age of of four or five channels, it was British. So it went on PBS. Um, I mean, they, and, they also had Doctor Who at the time, right? Like, Yes. But I feel like that, I don't know. Well, early Doctor Who, I think, was meant to be a little more educational, like with like the history of it all. I don't know. But anyway, like it was, it was culty. And certainly like as a little kid, I didn't understand most of it. Um, I think my parents were into it. And I had like one friend who was really into it. And then in high school, the Venn diagram of the theater tech nerds in my high school and Monty Python fans was a circle. And they had like albums that were, you know, audio versions of their sketches. We would play those. We would listen to those. The only time that most of us ever performed and were not just backstage people was in the high school talent show doing terrible renditions of Monty Python sketches. I have always been such a fan of his work and of, of those shows. They were very formative. Uh, Faulty Towers, too. Very formative. And at the time, it felt like both Money Python and Faulty Towers sort of felt like these these slightly secret things. They do not feel that way anymore at all. <laughs> but they did, They definitely did in the like 80s and 90s. I went through a major Monty Python phase in high school. For many, many years, I swore up and down that Monty Python and the Holy Grail was the funniest movie ever made. I My position on that has changed slightly, largely because... The Pythons themselves sucked the fun out mm. of it because they went through a phase where they were putting out like every couple of years, a new special edition DVD of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And it was like, this time it has segments recreated in Lego form. Like, <laughs> and I, I bought two or three of them. And at a certain point I'm like, guys, you're just looking for m- more money at this point. Like, I just felt like, it was a thing where they were really taking advantage of the fandom and then spam a lot happened. Which... 
Spamalot, if you don't know what it is, is a Broadway musical that they made out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I fucking hate it. <laughs> it is not very good. It is not very good. It just, it's the most pandery thing that ever pandered. And it's like between that, between the shitty politics, I mean, honestly, the only one of the living pythons who hasn't disappointed me yet is Michael Palin. And I haven't looked hard enough. He probably has done something to disappoint me. <laughs> I think he's still okay. The other part of it is I went to see, you talked about it, it being a thing that felt like secret and special back in the day. And I went to see at like a midnight screening of Bonnie Python and the Holy Grail in college, I think it was. Yeah. And it was one of those things where it was a room full of people who knew the movie inside and out, who would shout the punchlines before they hit. And it it killed the timing of the movie and it made the movie not funny to me. I haven't been able to watch that movie in, in one sitting since then because it was the most excruciating experience. Like it proved to me just how much of comedy is timing. <laughs> Oh man. But that being said, you know, they they were for a time very special to me and you know, I I I can compartmentalize. Oh, it's also worth mentioning, I should say, that we have talked about Faulty Towers before. Uh it came up during the Harvey Corman episode because Harvey Corman was in one of That's the right. many attempts to create an American Faulty Towers. His was called Snavely. It's terrible. <laughs> it's on YouTube. I don't recommend mm-hmm. it at all. Tim and Betty White and Oof, it's 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 a tough set. I don't think there's much I can add, but it, I, I wasn't a, a huge Python head as a kid, but I just absorbed enough of it from being around comedy nerds to to be able to talk the talk and the the whole inexplicable zaniness for the sake of inexplicable zaniness. It's it's filed in my head under the same bucket as the Muppets, so I'm I'm glad it's there. I feel like I very much tipped my hand. And in fact, I tipped it last week when I said this is one of my favorite episodes. Um, My memory was not faulty, Michal. And I'll just leave it at that for now. Christy, what did you think? Man, I loved this episode. Uh, There's a lot of shared DNA between Muppet humor and pythons, for sure. And I I particularly enjoyed John Cleese's full bore commitment to his part in this deranged ecosystem. You know, like... (laughs) We, we we talk about the strongest guest stars being ones that their energy easily, you know, assimilates. And I, I think he's definitely one of them. And I also think that this is the best iteration of the unwilling guest star plots. With all respect to my queen, J.P. Morgan, <laughs> I, I just think the Basil Fawlty energy actually worked to his advantage here. And this is also the first guest star that we've had where I actually had the thought, I could watch a whole season of this. Now I want them together. That would be something. <laughs> what do you think? Of just John Cleese. <laughs> of just John Cleese. This was a lovely time. I don't think I'm going to speak quite as effusively as you guys did, but it was a very solid, very fun episode of The Muppet Show with a, a couple of odd or awkward moments, but there were definitely some some season highlights in this episode. I, I would happily recommend it. David? I liked it significantly less than the rest of you. I'm not sure how much of that is just I have fallen out of love with John Cleese, and even though... Some of this stuff that he was in, I, I really enjoyed. It's just all colored with sort of an ick related to him that I couldn't wash away. How much of it was just that the parts didn't quite add up to me. So even though there were a lot of individual bits that I really liked, it didn't all feel like it came together. 
In fact, the first time I watched it, like halfway through, I was looking at the Muppet Wiki and I was like, wait, there was a Rolf bit? I don't even remember a Rolf bit. And I had to rewind and go back again because it just didn't, I, I don't know, it just didn't quite gel for me. Now, as we go through and discuss bit by bit, I think I will sound much more positive than this overall impression implies because I did like most of the individual parts, but it doesn't come together for me. And in particular, I I really want to push back against Christie's assertion that this is the best version of the unwilling guest star plot, because I feel like there wasn't necessarily a logic that connected each of his scenes. Like, why was he tied up at the beginning if he had a contract that outlined exactly what he would and wouldn't do in the next scene? That just, I know we don't watch this for plot and logic, but but mm. it all started to fall apart for me. Fair enough. John Cleese. Oh, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Cleese. Oh. <laughs> well, it's no use struggling, Mr. Cleese. You can't leave until you've done the show. So John Cleese is tied up with a, a really excessive, I think, amount of rope. And he's also gagged and struggling. And it sets quite a tone for this reluctant guest star episode. We have some some progress, or at least some mania to report from the Yay Evolution beat. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. John Cleese! <laughs> so here he pronounces it like Cleese, like, like Lease, as opposed to rhyming with cheese. Yeah, we, we, I've noticed we've already been alternating ourselves, and we, we had some discussion on Slack about which one was correct, and um, they can't keep it straight either, so... I've been trying really hard because my whole life I've said Cleese, but it was pretty clear to me from this episode that he says it Cleese. Mm-hmm. And then in doing the research, I learned that his family name had actually been Cheese, and his father was embarrassed by that as a family name. And so he changed it to Cleese uh, to make that a slightly less embarrassing family name when he joined the army. What a missed opportunity to be named John Cheese. <laughs> Stetler and Waldorf have uh, very little faith in the whole operation. Well, they'll never get this started. Mm-hmm. Much like us this evening. Uh, Gonzo's trumpet hits a solid, bright, clear note, and everyone is astonished, especially Gonzo. Yeah, the, the audience even cheers a little bit. It's weirdly great. <laughs> yeah, good for Gonzo. He did it. He seems almost disappointed. <laughs> Like yeah, he shakes his head off. I know that these episodes aired in a different order in different markets, but this seems to me that it would have been the perfect clip for the season finale. Yeah. Mm. Let's go backstage. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. So backstage this week, we have a couple of plots that uh, end up running together a little bit. We, we can argue about whether this all matches up. So early in the show, Gonzo uh, has an incident with his arm. He attempts to catch a cannonball with his bare hand to, uh, to quote from Kermit's introduction of him, to appease the intellectuals of our audience. So this is what the people are clamoring for. Crazy Harry fires a cannon at Gonzo, and Gonzo manages to catch a cannonball with his bare hand, but this is at the expense of his arm, which is now five feet long for the rest of the episode. Much to Gonzo's chagrin and much to the amusement of everyone else. It should be mentioned that Crazy Harry looks so pleased to be called Gonzo's lovely assistant. I hate to be pedantic. Really? Do you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> notice I paused. Um, but uh, what we see happen on stage does not at all match. Like the cannonball like hits Gonzo like square in the chest or the head or something and knocks him down. And then there's a cut and then the the gag of the arm with the cannonball. Like, I just don't understand why 
they didn't actually stage him catching the cannonball in his hand, which is the joke. I just found it very weird because later I'm going to talk about like a similar bit of editing and puppetry that I loved. And I just found it very odd. I mean, it's funny to watch him get knocked off stage and knocked off his feet. And it serves the joke to see his hand come on first and the long arm. Right. He should just, but he should get knocked off stage and knocked off his feet with a cannonball in his hand. That's all I'm saying. Cause that's what happens, right? Like he catches it and, and it pulls him off stage by the, by the hand. While stretching his arm out. I don't know. (laughs) Obviously, nobody was watching as closely as we are or in as high definition. (laughs) I just found it odd. I've seen my share of cannonball catching acts, but that had something different. What was that? A survivor. (laughs) Everybody's really mean to Gonzo after this happens, after he is like disabled in this accident. Yeah, Fozzie and Floyd uh, exchange a few jokes about this. And at one point, Fozzie discovers that Gonzo's arm is very handy (laughs) as a clothesline. Hey, have you heard about the new police show starring Gonzo the Great? No, what's it called? The uh, Long Arm of the Law. (laughs) Very funny. Very droll bear. Let's hear our other clip at Gonzo's expense. What is red and woolly and five feet long? Oh, uh, I don't know, Floyd. What is red and woolly and five feet long? A mitten for Gonzo the Great. (laughs) (laughs) Good, yes, just what the world needs. Humorous hip persons. (laughs) I want a t-shirt that says humorous hip person. (laughs) I appreciate that they both call him Gonzo the Great, even informally backstage. I love oh, this pairing. Enough. This Floyd Fozzie pairing makes me so happy. But like, Gonzo is so mad, and rightly so. Yeah. I mean, this is a serious problem. What do you do with a five foot long arm? I mean, other than use it as a clothesline or a punchline or a jump rope. Oh, all right. It's got plenty of uses. <laughs> Take that back. Uh, meanwhile, in our other little plot, John Cleese, the reluctant guest star, is none too pleased with his whole situation today, really. Come this place is infested with pigs. So? I don't want to work with them. Hi, John. Hi, Travis. Hi, 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 fellas. <laughs> That's why every one of my contracts has a standard no pigs clause. A, a, a no pigs clause? Uh, here we are. It says, I only work with the frog. That's you, right? I checked. Uh, the bear and mm-hmm. the ugly, disgusting little one who catches cannonballs. <laughs> That's it. No pigs. And that goes for monsters, too. Yes, this is all very well and good. Unfortunately, luncheon counter monster eats the contract right in front of John Cleese. When John asks to talk to his agent, we turn around and see the last of the agent disappearing down the gullet of Mean Mama. I noticed something weird during this scene. There's a really cute human-sized dress on a dress form in the background. Hmm. And I didn't recognize it from any past episodes. It's like a dress and it has like a little apron. I don't know. It sounds adorable. I'm usually so busy looking at the Muppets in the foreground that I only occasionally look at what's pinned to the wall or what's on that dress form. But it seems like there are a lot of interesting acts in this show that we never actually get to see. Yeah, I wonder if there's any rhyme or reason or design to it or if they just throw stuff up there. So Gonzo shows up in the guest star dressing room to ask for help with his arm, although it takes some convincing to distract John Cleese away from Gonzo's nose. Mr. Cleese, what am I going to do? 
Uh, which one are you? I'm the ugly, disgusting one who catches cannonballs. Ah, yes. <sighs> Look at me. Yes, it's horrible, isn't it? Still, not to worry. I know a plastic surgeon who can fix you up. Give you a little Roman number. Something cute. <laughs> No, Mr. Cleese, it's not my nose, it's my arm. Is it? Well, why is it in the middle of your face? <laughs> Mr. Cleese, just forget about the nose, please. Well, I'll try, but I can't promise anything. <laughs> I really like that exchange. Uh, John Cleese does eventually agree to help Gonzo. Gonzo says he wants both his arms to be the same length, so... They go through this ordeal where John Cleese stretches Gonzo's other arm out to match the first one. And by the end of all this, all four of Gonzo's limbs are in this long, tangled mess on the table. As wild as this is, it reminded me of a very real conversation that I was privy to recently where people were talking about having legs that were a slightly different length and how like that is mostly an issue of alignment. And they were like exchanging like chiropractor information. So it's outrageous, but it's not that outrageous. So we're feeling for Gonzo here. Yeah. It is upsetting. And it it seems like he can he can still because he walks on stage carrying the cannonball, so it seems like he can still use the long arm. But at the end of the sequence, it seems like all four of his limbs are are not usable. And it this is not resolved. <laughs> He's just on that table and slash we see of him. We don't know if he'll ever walk again. Yeah. I, again, I don't think they've fully thought through any element of this plot line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable to watch and it's also funny enough. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's deliberately uncomfortable. Actually, that's the thing that I like about it where like John Cleese's sensibility works here in an adult way that let's go with Peter Ustinov's maybe doesn't like it is a, it is kind of uncomfortable in a way that I, I feel like is, is, but but it, I was gonna say it's not for kids, but it is for kids. Like it's funny, right? Like, but it's, it's very it's, much in the like Looney Tunes mold. Yeah, like it's this it's this very physical sort of goofy thing of stretching out the limbs of the puppet, and it's silly. And actually, I think it's I think as a kid you don't find it disturbing. You just think it's it looks funny. And it's as an adult that I'm like, oh, that's fucked up, right? And I think that's something that John Cleese's sensibility is bringing that like. Petula Clark wouldn't, and and I like that about it. And no one, certainly, when this was originally running, was looking for things like logic or continuity. The no. assumption was they work just like a cartoon character. Like, you stretch them out, and then sometime off screen, they get put back together. How does that work? Doesn't matter. It's a puppet. <laughs> and it's a, it's a sitcom, and sitcoms, for the most part, even now, like, reset at the end of the episode. It's fine. Yeah, kill him this episode. He'll be back next week. It is also really interesting and a little fucked up, but <laughs> to hear, especially that exchange about the nose, like it's, it's my arm, well, what's it doing in the middle of your face? And then an exchange later that he has with a parrot that we'll talk about. It's this weird parallel to Muppet humor, this Python humor that he's bringing, where it's not quite the same, but it they match each other well enough that it works. And it's really interesting to see them line up and fit together like puzzle pieces. So... Uh, for the big finale, we'll talk a little bit more about the music later, but in the introduction, we are introduced to John Cleese here to sing, to dream the impossible dream. Hang on. Oh, well, nothing. You just missed your cue, that's all. What? See, that was an eight-bar intro, and then you're supposed to sing, to dream the impossible dream, you know, like that. <laughs> you can't be serious. Kermit, oh, yeah. I don't do old show tunes. Oh. Oh, well, I, I, I'm sorry. That, that, that's our mistake. I, I'm sorry. We just got confused. Uh, I, we'll just uh, take it. Uh, curtains! 
Okay, the curtains fall when they open again. John Cleese is dressed for Wagner, and Sweetums is singing. Somebody pronounce this for me. Ride of the Valkyries. Oh, okay. But you want to do it in German? Ago, a couple weeks ago, David did it in German. Well, <laughs> I, I said the name of the opera, which is Die Valkyrie. Okay, thanks. Well, whatever it is, John Cleese is not about it. I'd hated your lousy cadenza. We never get to hear the cadenza. Kermit asks for one more chance. The curtains close when they open again. John Cleese is basically in a Marvin Suggs costume. What? I'm leaving. Oh, wait, John! Oh! Oh, what's the matter? Kermit, I am not going to do some glossy-eared Mexican maraca solo! It doesn't have to be a solo, guys! That does not help! Oh, no, well, how about this? All right, everybody! Kermit, there is no way I'll do a song! There is no way he'll do a song. We will stop this at once. We will stop this at once. I love this. It feels very Gilbert and Sullivan to me to have everybody just kind of singing dialogue in unison. I like it as the spiritual successor of the George Burns, You Made Me Love You sketch. That too. I looked up cloth-eared because it's, it, sound, it, it sounds and is very British. And it can mean literally unable to hear. And it comes from people actually working in a textile mill. But it can also mean metaphorically tone deaf. And so I think in this context, it means like, I don't want to do this racist Mexican number, which I just found interesting after some of the conversations we've had in recent weeks. John Cleese, at the time, got it. Or he just said the first insult that came to mind. Also possible. Um, and apparently there's like a, a, a famous line. Also, when you Google it, one of the things that comes up is Faulty Towers, because apparently he used it on Faulty Towers. And that's how a lot of Americans know the expression at all, enough that it's like the third hit on Google. Huh. Weird. All right. I mean, I had to look it up, too. Yeah, It's not like a joke in Faulty Towers. It's just like a thing he yells at Connie Booth, because that's what happens on that show. It's very strange. Anyway, all this leads into our reluctant guest star cringing on stage while a chorus of Muppets sing The Impossible Dream, which we will get to later. It should be noted that John Cleese, who claims he does not sing, or at least won't sing here, uh, he comes back at the episode closing to plug his album, John Cleese, A Man and His Music. The whole thing about John Cleese not singing comes from his biography. When he signed up for the Footlights Club in college, they said, do you sing? And he said, no. Do you dance? No. What do you do? I can be funny on stage. Of course, he was exaggerating. He did go on to be in a Broadway musical. So, you know, I think he probably sang better than he gave himself credit for. But it was like one of his sort of gags about himself that he liked to do. If you Google John Cleese, a man in his music, there are also many, many people asking if that is real. <laughs> it is not. It's a very sincere photo on the album cover. Though. Yeah, and I, he tweeted about it really recently. So I think the Muppets on Disney Plus has led to like a a rash of people freshly Googling, Googling this. <laughs> Excellent. I also, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. And I, I meant to say that between this and the, the Merchant of Venice bit, was it last week or the week before? I feel like we're finally getting, like, Gonzo is becoming Gonzo. I feel like Gonzo was Gonzo in this respect from the beginning. Like... When we first met him, he was eating a tire and demolishing a car. And I know those aren't quite the same, but that all feels of a piece. I I think it's the like the offstage Gonzo that has really needed the time to gel. That's true. The other thing, I was so busy being pedantic that I forgot to point out that um, Kermit comes on stage 
and tells the audience everything is fine without actually looking at Gonzo or having any idea that anything is fine in any way. Gonzo could be dead. <laughs> and he's like, it's fine. Everything's fine. Totally fine. fine. You caught the cannonball. What else do you want? Uh, the, the, the former stage manager in me was really bothered by that. <laughs> Bring in the curtain. Someone actually check on him. A man and his music aside, we do have a, a fair bit of music in this episode. Our opening number is a ditty from Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers. Her kisses I miss so. I know you miss her kisses. He's getting now, I know. You know he's getting her kisses. If she could see, I know she'd come run and hurry up home back to me. If she could only see her broken heart and lonesome pal, somebody stole my girl. Go get it, Gramps. I just, I'm Team Gogolala. I, <laughs> I, I do not care for Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers. Oh, man. They, I mean, like the. The sight of them immediately, I, I heard in my head uh, Jack Donaghy from 30 Rock saying, never go with a hippie to a second location. They look shifty and like they could possibly be cult members. I, I just have issues. Anyway, this is this is a song called Somebody Stole My Gal from uh, 1918. Shout out to the public domain written by a guy named Leo Wood. And it uh, became popular in the mid-20s. It was recorded by Ted Weems and his orchestra, uh, who had a five-week hit number one with this in 1924. So oddly, the song is very well known in Japan because it's used as the theme song by uh, Yoshimoto Kogyo, which is a theater company that specializes in comedy. So it has... a a strong association with comedy. Uh, it's used in a, a bunch of video games. I actually fell down a really weird Japanese video game wiki wormhole. There's this, a game called Poppin' Music uh, that's kind of sort of like rock band, but like with like weird buttons. It's like half rock band, half Dance Dance Revolution. Ooh. Um, yeah, it looks fun. I, I would, I think, enjoy playing Poppin' Music. This song is actually Leo Wood's main claim to fame. He mostly worked as a lyricist. His other songs include Mean Old Bedbug Blues, Wang Wang Blues, and Running Wild. Oh boy. I have nothing to say about this. Great. <laughs> didn't it didn't offend me. I thought it was fine. I didn't love it. I, I was Yeah, it just sort of felt like it took up space. Yeah. I did appreciate Richard Hunt pulling up the bass voice as uh, the character who I've just learned is named Bubba. Of course it is. Speaking of, of taking up space, we do have a very forgettable Ralph bit. <laughs> Usually this bird's a great performer. But tonight she laid an egg. Yep, that's the whole bit. So the piece of music uh, is just called Ralph's Polka. It's an original by Derek Scott. And this only made me laugh because it reminded me of a thing from my childhood. My, my grandfather and I once watched a Victor Borga special where there was a woman in the audience who had a very strange laugh. And he said, Madam, are you laying eggs? And, and like small child me thought that was the funniest thing that any human had ever said. It is so. funny. 
For for many years, my, my grandfather would just say, Madam, are you laying eggs? And I would just laugh hysterically. Chrissy, I know this is called Rolf's polka, but is it actually a polka? I don't think so. Like, it doesn't sound like a polka to me, but I'm realizing I'm not sure that I know what the guidelines are for what qualifies something to be a polka. Yeah, I, I would have to like actually look at the sheet music, I think. Yeah, I feel like I know a polka when I hear it, but I I can't say that for certain. There might be other things that fit those definitions that I just am not aware of. Yeah, I, I feel like my criterion for a polka is if if I can't imagine Weird Al playing it, yep. then it, it doesn't qualify. According to the Nashville Oktoberfest website, uh, a polka should be in 2-4 and be upbeat and sound like it should get people dancing. I mean, I guess it fulfills some of that. We find Piggy in an interesting position in the UK spot this week. Oh, boy. Can't get away to marry you today. My wife won't let me. Uh, thank you, but it's just a song. You know, I don't have a wife. Mm-hmm, not yet. I don't intend to have one either. Are you ready? Uh, yes. <laughs> there was I, waiting at the church, waiting at the church, waiting at the church. When I found he left me in the lurch, Lord, how it did upset me. Uh-huh. I cannot believe they let Miss Piggy go on stage in that condition. <laughs> she was not wearing gloves. <laughs> okay, let's just get right to it. So, yeah. so Joe brought this up last week, and, and I don't think any of us had noticed. And this week, she is not wearing gloves, and and so so the gag is that the the her character is 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 pregnant, very pregnant, and in a wedding dress. And so, so her her hands are like on her pregnant belly, and so they're very visible, and they creep me the fuck out because <laughs> they're like they're like little claws, or like she has really bad arthritis or something, and she only has three <laughs> fingers. I've never noticed this before in my entire life, <laughs> and Miss Piggy is ruined for me <laughs> by her pregnancy. Busy. Let's be clear. Which, busy. by the way, the show makes extraordinarily clear at the end of the sketch. Uh, we are not to understand this as being a real pregnancy. She has a pillow under her dress. Yeah. I mean, also like if it were even in the world of the show, like it is like the worst pregnancy pad I've ever seen. Like it's obviously a pillow stuffed under her dress. <laughs> I wonder if Frank Oz had recently watched funny girl and get the idea for this because it's not inherent in the song, right? Like the joke of the song is I'm left at the altar because the guy I'm going to marry turns out is already married and his wife won't let him. Not that I'm pregnant, right? That's right. that's entirely external to the song as written. Yeah, does it add anything for her to be a pregnant bride? It's it's pretty funny. Yeah. It adds urgency. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about the song itself. It's called Waiting at the Church. It's uh, another music hall song. What? Uh, no. We haven't had a music hall song in a while. Really? It feels like we have one every week. Yeah, but we haven't, though. At least not this 
intensely a music hall song. So this is from 1906. The lyrics are, are by Fred W. Lee, and the music was by Henry E. Pether. They wrote it for a performer named Vesta Victoria, uh, which is not a Julie Andrews musical about cross-dressing. Oh, man. The name of a person. What a great name for a drag queen, though. Uh-huh. Yeah. And she can perform with her sister, Vespa Victoria, who comes on a little <laughs> motorcycle. Ooh. <laughs> So funnily enough, Vesta Victoria uh, was born Victoria Lawrence, and she had the the foresight, the psychic foresight, to realize that there would be a Vicky Lawrence who would be a comedy queen later. So uh, she instead went by Vesta Victoria. Clever. And uh, yeah, she was famous for this song and also a song called Daddy Wouldn't Buy Me a Bow Wow. <sighs> Which we'll see on The Muppet Show, I believe. Yeah. She's interesting. She's not one of those that like died in a an entertaining way um <laughs> but she, uh, but when she did die she didn't leave a, a ton of money behind and on wikipedia uh, they speculate that it's it's believed to be due partly to a burglary of her jewels and partly to, to the scheming of handsome young men oops and if the name fred w lee sounds familiar uh, I mean, why would it? But if it does, it's because uh, he was the lyricist of Don't Dilly Dally on the Way, a.k.a. the Cock Linnet song. Our second favorite Linnet Bird song. Yeah. I'm going to go on a limb here and say that Fred Lee might be my favorite music hall lyricist. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, like These two I, I, songs are collectively maybe my favorites of the music hall numbers we've been exposed to on the show. It's a good point. I I, I concur with that. Uh, Henry E. Pether, this was his most famous song. He had uh, a few others, including Poor John and the Seaside Posters Round the Home, which <laughs> sounds rousing. Um, um, but Henry E. Pether is actually more notably uh, one of the founders of the, of the Performing Rights Society, or PRS, which is uh, one of the UK's songwriters collectives, uh, which is a la ASCAP, you know, collecting royalties and that sort of thing. And interestingly, after this, in... September of 78, the then uh, UK Prime Minister James Callaghan made a reference to this song to indicate that there wouldn't be a general election that year. I, I, I don't entirely, I, I, I didn't dig enough to, into the context to like see it or hear it, but, uh, but he misattributed the song to Marie Lloyd, who uh, was the uh, one of the more, uh, woe begotten died on stage people um that we've talked about in previous music hall discussions marie lloyd i think was the originator of the, the cock Leonard song now when you take a silly pillow out from under your dress i like it <laughs> that makes me laugh every, every time. time yeah i hope that was improvised so we we get something that's a, a little newer uh and a little stranger <laughs> lost souls on the highway of life and there is no one with whom we would rather say, ain't it just great? Ain't it just grand? We've got each other. we got a lot because we got each other. It's a Robin and Sweetums duet. That's so good. And in the context of the show, Sweetums is filling in for the stretchily indisposed Gonzo. <laughs> but it's it's delightful. It's Two Lost Souls from Damn Yankees, which is from 1955. Music by Richard Adler, lyrics by Jerry Ross. And 
these guys, it's, it's a sad story because they were really a hot commodity on Broadway in the fifties. Uh, they had two big hits in a row, damn Yankees and um, the pajama game. But sadly, Jerry Ross died at age 29 of enlarged lung. Mm. Uh, yeah. And Richard Adler went on to write other shows without him and none of them were even remotely as good, which is also sort of. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, some of them like f- f- infamous flops. <laughs> Did anyone look up uh, who's singing which part? Oh, no. Oh, I thought no. about it and then I didn't get around. I sort of assumed that Robin was doing the Gwen Verdon part because he has the higher voice. That makes sense. Um, Less dancing, though. It's true. Although he does an adorable little dance on the top of this like medieval throne that is the prop, where he sort of like climbs up it and then Sweetums bangs on the side of it and he like hops down with each bang. It's very cute. It is very cute. It's so cute and so simple. The way that Jerry Nelson is is just hiding behind the, that chair, or I think sometimes hiding behind Sweetums, it, like it, they don't need anything to make the puppetry of this work. I, I love everything about this. It's very cute. And if you only know these characters from The Muppet Show, you may not realize that they actually share an origin in the Frog Prince special, which predated the Muppet Show. So it's something of a reteaming to have them do this together, which is also very sweet. Yeah, I love seeing them being paired together. Something or someone very big positioned next to something or someone very small is inherently comical, as I have been heard to say elsewhere. But the two of them singing together and doing each of their little dance numbers to to complement each other is always just so cute. And watching it, I remembered that I had a storybook about Robin and Sweetums teaming up. This was a 1982 book called Two for the Show, where Robin kept being too small to be in the numbers he wanted to be in, and Sweetums kept being too big, and they ended up doing a sketch together of Jack and the Beanstalk. It was very sweet. It's not as adorable as this sketch, though, because you can't watch Sweetums do this groovy heel click in a book. The premise of that book is so wholesome. It's very wholesome. Uh, there is a there was a read along version that was like a book and cassette, and someone has put it on YouTube, so we will put it in the show notes. Amazing, nice. Yeah, we we had the cassette. I'm I'm pretty sure that my sister and I recorded our own story on the other side. This just happens to be a song that I know very well, and and this also happens to have happened recently, and we talked about it with for what it's worth that I noticed that they cut the bridge and they also cut the bridge for what it's worth. And so now I'm going to start paying attention to see if this is a thing that they do all the time, (laughs) because the, it's my only criticism is that by cutting the bridge, which is there for a reason, musically, it's a little repetitive. Yeah. I mean, I assume it's for time. Like lyrically, I don't think there's anything in there that isn't appropriate as opposed to for what it's worth, where they're. Well, it does. The bridge does get gendered, which the rest of the song is in. It refers to them as Jack and Jill. Yes, that's true. But eh, who cares? Like, it's a metaphor. Like, I don't know. I feel like I'm just curious. It's, I'm going to start paying more attention to it because it, it seems like a thing that they might actually do all the time because they're like, oh, it needs to be shorter. We'll just lift this part out. And and it makes it a little bit samey. So we've talked a little bit about the the grand finale <laughs> Let's talk first about the the bit of opera that, man, Sweetums is doing some heavy lifting in this episode musically. (laughs) 
Was it definitely Richard Hunt singing? I assume so. He also did the bass part in the Jug Huggers number. I think he just had the range. Yeah. It's, a, it's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, so it's Ride of the Valkyries from uh, Richard Wagner's uh, Die Valkyr from 1870, which is uh, an opera that's part of the bigger uh, ring cycle, which was a thing that took him like 20 or 30 years to finish. And he, oh, he was apparently a real jerk about it. It was just like, it's like, no, you're going to see the whole thing when I finish it. And it's like, one of many reasons why he was an <laughs> well, no, not Richard but, Wagner. Uh, <laughs> anyway, just leave it at that. Wagner was an asshole. Uh, I would much rather talk about The Impossible Dream, which we hear a little bit of at the beginning of this sequence and the end. I'm leaving. He's leaving. He came into our life, but now he's leaving. <laughs> You are supposed to be my host! How can you do this to me? Kermit, I am your guest! This is your guest To follow that star No matter how hopeless No matter how far Ugh, this is your guest. It kills me every single time. It's so good. Um, yeah, so The Impossible Dream, even though he calls it an old show tune, not really that old at this particular moment in time. It's from the show Man of La Mancha, music by Mitch Lee, uh, lyrics by Joe Darian, musical very loosely based on Don Quixote. And uh, yeah, from 1965, there was a movie version of it with Peter O'Toole in 1972. Very bad movie version. Oh my god, it's terrible. Yeah, and it, it's been recorded by a million people, including noted Joe Raposo stands Frank Sinatra. Uh, it was originated uh, in the show by Richard Kiley. They spared no expense. Well, and for people who aren't intimately familiar with the song, part of what makes the joke so funny is that the actual line at that moment is, this is my quest. This is my quest. So right. when yeah. they turn, I am your guest, into that line, it's just, it's perfect. And it, I mean, it, it was a hugely popular song. Like at the time, people would have gotten that. Oh, like absolutely. People watching at the time, yeah. When the when the curtains close and they open up again and they do the opera bit and then John Cleese like exposits to the audience, he's complaining to Kermit and he's like, the second the curtain closed, like three monsters grabbed me and threw me into this costume. <laughs> like, it's not a show, you don't need to explain it, but I love that they did. Yeah. <laughs> it's made me happy. Yeah, his the reason I think that his iteration of the unwilling guest star plot is the best is because it has the most sort of like actor's nightmare logic to it mm -hmm. like monsters running at you and taking your clothes off yeah exactly <laughs> it's it sounds terrible well and like unlike unlike jp morgan and i and i love everything she does in that episode but like like she does that number <laughs> like she's in the bird costume singing the song yeah. right like he he's he's committed i mean and he is written as committed to the bit in a more consistent way, I think. I would say that J.P. Morgan follows through on what she has contracted to do and 
John Cleese, the man, decides that it doesn't matter what's in his contract. He doesn't want to do it, and he's just going to whine about it in front of the audience. I know which actor I'd rather work with. Fair. Yeah. Fair take. The one who makes out with Dr. Teeth. <laughs> also, I, I was just doing the math. I was trying to think of an equivalent of the calling it an old show tune. That would be like if, now if they ask him to do a number from In the Heights. Oh, oh boy. Jazz, listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. On that note, yeah, <laughs> let's get out of that conversation quickly. Uh, let's get down to show business. We have a Muppet News Flash. Science has recently discovered a process which may go a long way towards solving the world's food crisis. Dr. William Edgar of Chicago, Illinois, reports he has found a method of synthesizing Italian dinners out of wool. <laughs> At a recent press conference, Edgar demonstrated his process by knitting a terrine of minestrone while his wife, Nancy, crocheted meatballs. All right. I mean, is, is raising sheep and then crocheting their wool into food that much less of an energy drain than growing food? There's less carbon footprint than eating the sheep. What about a sheep-pig hybrid? Are you proposing we eat it or raise it for a I don't know. It's just a callback. <laughs> so I don't know why I'm being so uh, me about the, everything this week, but uh, <laughs> prop cop, um, the newsman is holding up his paper this week and you can see through it that there's writing on it, which is good, but it's handwriting, <laughs> which is weird. <laughs> it's breaking news. They didn't have time to type this up. I, sure. <laughs> It's just strange. And as a person who like used to occasionally have to make props like that, you just take a page out of the script. Yeah. But also now I, now I want to know what it says. There's, I definitely tried. There's no way to tell what it says. Alas. I love that Dr. William Edgar has his own Muppet Wiki page. Photo not available. Is he appear again? I don't think so. Oh. I was wondering if this was a commentary on some actual world event, but I could not find anything. I mean, is there a food shortage? I'm... I'm the, there's all there's all there's always hunger in capitalism. I don't know. There's I'm sure there was something. The the front, the front page, I, I I mostly stay away from the news when I do my news updates, but um yeah, it's not a great time. <laughs> the the late seventies. On that note, let's go to Pigs in Space. Starring the acrophobic Captain Link Hogthrob, the illustrious first mate, Miss Piggy, and the sesquipedalian Doctor Strange Pork. So as we open, Link is alone at the bridge on a late night watch when the swine trek is besieged by, could it be pirates? You can't be a pirate. Of course I'm a pirate. I got a hat, a parrot, and a hook. What else should I be? A management consultant? Okay. So you're a pirate. So I'm a pirate. Ha! Ha ha ha! Wrong hand, stupid. What? The hook was on the left hand. Don't lie, now, middle of laying siege. Uh, so, John Cleese as Long John Silverstein, and uh, does making something sound more Jewish constitute a joke? I don't know the answer to this. I keep getting the impression that people think that this is funny, and I don't know whether it is. Anyway, he's accompanied by his belligerent parrot, and their relationship quickly becomes the star of this show. Oh, you used to take me out all the time. You don't love me anymore. Of course I love you. I am working now. And you're making a lousy job of it. You want to be an ex-parrot? 
At which point he shoots a hole in the ceiling and they try to abandon ship. Even the laugh track is like that ex paratrick is pandering. Don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It wasn't even a joke. It was just pandering. Just a reference. Yeah. Back when audiences knew the difference. Yeah, <laughs> even fake ones. But apart from that, he had to have had a hand in writing this, right? Like oh, he he co-wrote the whole episode according to Muppet Wiki. It's just so pythony. It's uh, like it like the the management consultant line. Feels, I mean, very British, A, but also like very, very like a Monty Python joke. Yeah. I mean, you could picture any of the Pythons in drag as his parrot. Right. Saying you don't love me anymore. The way that the the parrot, she like does this little thrusting her wings down in frustration when she says, it's always the same. It's it's so adorable. That that little shrug. That's my favorite. I mean, the parrot is my favorite Muppet of the week, but that that delivery is my favorite delivery of the week. Their relationship is something else. <laughs> There's a great little bit. I've 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 started to really notice where edits happen and and like little little puppetry cheats. And the parrot starts out on his shoulder and then moves to a piece of scenery. And so like there's a bit where where he takes the parrot off his shoulder and there's a cut and and John Cleese is holding the parrot and the parrot's back is to the camera and he he's not being puppeteered. And and Cleese has a line and sort of like shakes him a little bit and then she, he sets him she, down. Parrot is she? How, how, how do we know the parrot's a she? Because it's his wife. So they never or really specify. Husband. We don't. We know. know they're in a relationship. Yeah, uh, I've been assuming she, but okay. They and the parrot's back is to the camera and then <laughs> Cleese puts the the parrot down on. There's another cut and Cleese puts the parrot down on on a box, but the parrot of course is already down on the box because. You know, now a hand is in the parrot again, and it's just—it's just so deftly done, and you know, and it really just makes everything look real and alive. That the parrot can actually move from one spot to the other, even though, in fact, it can't. And I, I just love all of that technical stuff. Yeah, it's really cool and really seamless. I didn't even think about it until I had watched a couple of times. I'm like, wait, now, so Jerry Nelson must be behind him and puppeteering from over his shoulder, and now they move the parrot so that they can look at each other face to face. It's really cool. Yeah. And it's all done with, you know, with that, with film editing, those three shots together. I can't figure out if this is the funniest pigs in space, or if it's just that the first one that didn't involve a sexist joke at Miss Piggy's expense in so long that it was just a breath of fresh air. (laughs) But God, I found this so funny. I mean, it's definitely an off, an off model pigs in space and it it doesn't hurt. (laughs) It's still very gendered humor for whatever that's worth True. and for whatever the gender of the parrot actually is. The pirate goes to uh, what's supposed to be the intercom, but is actually a payphone, and he spills his doubloons all over the floor. And the parrot starts saying, oh, you told me we were broke. So wh- <laughs> whatever the gender of the parrot, she doesn't know what their financial situation is. Right. <laughs> now that was hilarious. <laughs> yes, it was really <laughs> funny. You suppose they meant it to be? At the dance this week, we've got some standard fly-in-my-soup jokes. Uh, I want to mention that one of them is told by Kermit, who is dancing with Miss Mousie. We keep thinking we've seen the last of her, and she keeps coming back for an encore. These are jokes we've heard before, but the whole sketch is saved, I think, by two waiters at the end. They're standing side by side, but they still go in for a dip after they've told their joke. Fly-in-soup joke were, jokes were very big when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> These weren't just fly in the soup jokes. They also all had the same sort of like gangstery start of like, 
So I says to him, I says, like, it is weird to tell a third person fly in soup joke, right? Like, I feel like you need a waiter (laughs) if you're going to act out a fly in soup joke. Yeah. You need, as opposed to like just me telling you a fly in my soup joke. Yeah. Either it's you interacting with a waiter or it's you telling the joke about somebody else. It's not a first person joke. Right. But if you're going to do them with Muppets, I feel like you should have. A Muppet and a and a waiter Muppet and a well that's fly. why we got the two cater waiters. In yes, there. I know. Yes, the true heroes of the sketch. So meanwhile, on the planet Kuzbane, Kermit uh, is reporting. He's interviewing a jar full of liquid alien known as a spooble. You betcha. Or as they say on Kuzbane, we spoobles are all wet. <laughs> uh, that's a big joke with us spoobles. Ah, uh, Jack. <laughs> Listen, do you like my jar? Your uh, jar? Oh, it's the latest. See-through sides, convertible top. I'm not even wearing the cap. Uh-huh, yeah, it's uh, very nice. My wife said that for a TV interview, I should wear my crystal vase. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to be casual. And then what is essentially a giant fuzzy pink anteater reaches its snout into the jar and drinks up the spoobble and... That would be funny, except the spoobal mentioned having a wife, and now I'm just sad for everybody. Should have worn the cap. Yeah, this is like a very nonchalant murder. I have so many questions. <laughs> do the spoobals live in jars and vases all the time? How do they get in and out of the jars? Like, I find Kuzbin very confusing. <laughs> I mean, they're, they don't seem to be very long-lived. They also seem to have a lot of different species who are all intelligent and yet absolutely no buildings. Or, like, sense of self-preservation. Like, it seems like this would be a common problem. And that jar came with a lid. Yeah, he says he's not even wearing the lid. Is that some kind of daring thing? Like riding a motorcycle with no helmet? Who had it coming? There, yeah, this raises many questions. <laughs> Kermit then says that this is the first time that a Kuzbanian has been drunk on television and the pink creature does a little drunk hiccup, which is cute. What do you suppose would happen to a spooble if you put him in a kettle and turned the heat on under him? Oh, he'd probably get steamed. <laughs> Play us out, Stetler and Waldorf. Well, see you next time. Yeah, unless I get lucky and break a leg. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We'll be back next week for our season finale, which discusses the Cloris Leachman episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Shout out to all the cater waiters who are listening to us right now, because I'm sure there's more than a few. (laughs) We know our demographic.